Luke's Gospel and chapter 22. As we start from the beginning of the chapter, we have the Lord at the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper explaining to his disciples that he was laying down his life for them, that the, 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 the broken bread represented his body and that the poured out wine represented his blood and telling them that there was going to be a betrayal. In the very midst of that declaration, the disciples began to argue about which of them was the greatest, which of them was the most important. And again, they need to be told that this is not the way the kingdom of God works. And there were those particular encouragements given to them. And then our Lord talked about the uh, sifting that was about to come, the great trial and temptation from Satan that was going to shake the disciples. And speaking particularly to Peter, he told Peter that he would be praying for him, had already begun to do so, that his faith might not fail. And Peter began to boast and say, in effect, I don't need your prayers. I'm ready to stand with you to go both to prison and to death. And Peter is told that you are shortly going to deny me three times. And then he warns the disciples, as we saw last week, that now they need to go on a war footing that the situation is about to change. No longer will Messiah be making his uh, outwardly triumphant course through Israel. And it looks as if uh, death and sin are falling before him. But now he's going to go and die upon the cross. And the whole dynamic of their ministry in the earth as they go now, not just to the, uh, the house of Israel, but to the whole world is going to change. And they don't get it. When Christ says you need to be ready for the road, they say, well, we've got two swords. And that brings us to verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come into the depths of our Lord's experience, our Saviour's experience of suffering and woe, as we come into these last hours of his life recorded on the pages of this book, we pray that you would take us You'd lead us by your spirit. You'd take us by the hand and tenderly, carefully and reverently. You'd bring us to where we can see something more of the heart of Christ. And so your own heart to us. Lord, will you grant to us then a careful wisdom to handle these words in a way that properly reflects what is taking place. That we may learn from Christ and learn of Christ 
and so bring honour to you and to your Son. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. As we work our way into Luke chapter 22 and then on into chapter 23, you could really write over the whole of this section those words that are found in Isaiah 63 that the servant of God has trodden the winepress alone. There is this increasing isolation. You see it even in the interactions that he has with his disciples there in that upper room where they celebrated together at the Lord's table. And now the narrative, Luke the historian, moves us on from the declarations and the demands and the disappointments of the supper as our Saviour leads the eleven disciples to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke doesn't tell us that that is the place, but we know it from the other records. It's a place of privacy. It's a place of peace. It's the place where our Lord has been accustomed, it seems, to spend his nights during this last week in Jerusalem, going outside of the city, uh, getting perhaps a, a degree of security. But it's also a place of familiarity. When he came to the place... Why is that significant? It's significant because our Lord Jesus isn't running away. The place is the place where Judas has been staying with them. The place is the place where the disciples are known to gather once night has fallen. Jesus goes not to a place where he can hide, but to a place where Judas will be able to find him. And there he begins to pray. And as he prays in the garden... Luke carries us closer to the heart of Christ than perhaps we have ever come before. He gives us a window that is showed us, showing us something of Christ's closest relationships and deepest experiences. Now, it's a window that has, if you will, a net curtain over it. And it's a window that is made of frosted glass. It's got the frosted glass of our own ignorance, our own fallibility. And it's got the net curtain of the Spirit's care in communicating these things to us. That doesn't mean you can't see through it, but it does mean that we need to be careful what we think we see and to act carefully. There's much that is revealed here, and there are things that are still veiled. And there are points here where I will be offering suggestions rather than stating certainties. The certainties are are there in the text. Some of the meaning, some of the sense here carries us beyond human experience because it's carrying us into the experience of the eternal Son of God who became man. And there are dimensions now to what he goes through that leave us struggling to grasp. Everything here centres around the prayer of Jesus Christ. Even the structure of it 
drives us toward verse 42. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And if you could fold this section in half and make it, as it were, a a sideways V-shape, you have these instructions about how the disciples are to watch and pray, and you have these different experiences on both sides, one going in and one going out, and it all centres upon this plea of Jesus Christ we'll spend then most of our time there but we'll try and put it in its context by considering first of all Christ's company as he goes to pray on the Mount of Olives Judas has already left he has gone out to betray the Lord Jesus he is off the scene at this point And so all the other disciples are there, the 11 with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've just been told, enough of this. And they've just been told that they're going to be sifted. And they've just been told that the man that they're accustomed to think of as the leader among the disciples is going to deny Jesus Christ. And they've just been told that they need to go out prepared for war and they think that they need their swords. And they've been told that the kingdom doesn't work the way the kingdoms of this world work. And they've been told that Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of them and they're not sure who it is. And they've had this strange experience where the Lord at the past has established something new out of the form of what was old and now the Lord Jesus walks down the steps from the upper room and starts heading through the dark city do you think they talked to one another as they went or do you think there was silence was it awkward were they whispering among themselves Luke doesn't tell us But it must have been, in some respects, a difficult journey with some of these things hanging over them. This isn't like the other nights when they'd gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And these 11, they are meant to be his closest and his fiercest friends and supporters. They're meant to be the ones who are going to stand with him. In fact, they've been boasting that through thick and thin, they will not leave him. They've been declaring their courage, their readiness to take the lead. And on arrival in the garden, the Lord Jesus, coming to that familiar place, speaks to them. And he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That brings us to Christ's command to these disciples. And you notice that as he goes into the darkness... His heart is still toward his people. If you knew that you were about to suffer, I can almost guarantee that you would be primarily concerned about yourself. And yet Christ always has an eye for his disciples, always a word for his disciples. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. At the moment when he is going to be tested, he is warning and counselling his followers He says, pray, and he means start and don't stop. Start and go on praying, persistently and insistently pray, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the sense seems to be that you will be spared this season of intense trial and difficulty. 
I think it is striking that our Lord does not even say, pray that when you're tempted, you'll be able to stand, but rather pray that you might even be spared the temptation itself. Hell's forces are about to be unleashed upon us. The wickedness of Satan is coming to its climax. He will shortly say, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And all this antagonism, all this hellish spiritual ugliness, this viciousness is about to be unleashed against you. To disrupt, to shake, to obstruct, to prevent and to divide. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. It may be that our Lord has primarily in mind what is about to happen there in Gethsemane and in the hours that follow. This immediate need that they are going to be pressed to run. That the challenge is going to be to abandon Christ and to flee. That they will not do the will of God that has been explained to them. You will see that the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered. Christ is saying, in effect, they will take me first and they will turn on you next. And you need to pray that you may not enter into temptation. It may be that there's a, an echo that spreads out from this counsel, this commandment that you're going to need to remember this in the days that lie ahead. You're going to have to learn to pray and to go on praying that you might not enter into temptation, that you won't be subjected to trials of such magnitude that they, they shake you and overwhelm you were it not for my pleading on your behalf. It's not the first time they've been told this, is it? Lord, teach us to pray. When you pray, speak like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Christ says to them now, you need to pray like I've taught you to pray. I don't know if it reflects his own prayer. I don't know if he's telling them this because in some way that is reflected in what he's about to pray. But I do know this, that if Christ taught his disciples to pray, do not lead us into temptation. And if Christ twice on the night in which he was betrayed said to them, rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation then it is safe for us to go on praying now like this. And so may I ask, if you're a Christian here this morning, when was the last time that you prayed in sense, if not necessarily in precise word, Lord, do not lead me into temptation. Spare me from this kind of testing. Are we surprised that we face the battles that we do? Are we shocked at how often and how easily we fall when we are not using the language and the meaning that our Lord urged upon us in the more general sense and in the more particular sense? When you wake up in the morning, when you're about to go out and face your day, 
when you're going to go to school or to work, when you're perhaps going to engage with ungodly family members or, or neighbours, when you know that there are particular challenges and pressures, maybe persecutions that are going to come upon you, when you know that there's a, a path of obedience that you're going to walk and that there's going to be uh, an antagonism toward you, whether in the church or as you make your way through the world at large, how often have you been praying do not allow me to enter into temptation. Don't let me go into a situation where I'll be subjected to such challenge, such difficulty. Perhaps one of the reasons why we so often stumble is because we've not prayed that we wouldn't even go into that situation. Again, you think of what we just read a few moments ago in the first, in the first chapter of James. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So when am I safe? It is when I am not even enticed. Your heart and mine is like an oily rag. If you bring an oily rag near the sparks and near the flames, it will go up like a torch. We need to pray that we might not enter into temptation, that we might be preserved and kept safe, knowing our own weakness and need. And so with these 11, our Lord comes to the place and he says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he withdraws from them about a stone's throw. And this carries us into Christ's conflict. Matthew and Mark tell us that, first of all, he went a little further into the garden with his three closest companions, James and Peter and John. And then even they were told to wait at a distance. And there's something, it's, it's, it's a very Hebrew way of speaking. I think in some ways it's a, it's a very physical way of speaking well, I said to one of you boys go out and throw a stone get a good sized one one that fits in your hand not so light that it can't be really hefted and not so heavy that you can't get it very far and throw it and then you think there's Jesus walking away about that distance and the disciples are now away from him close enough to see close enough to hear but not now intimately involved. And Christ is drawn away. It's not just that he happens to, to step over to one side. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of necessity. There's something impelling him. And then he kneels down in order to pray. Now, the typical Jewish expression for prayer is to stand and to lift one's eyes and hands to God in heaven and to ask God for the things that are needful. It's an unusual thing for a Jewish man to kneel down to pray. It's already communicating something of that intensity and that urgency and the physicality of what is about to happen. The intensity begins to press in as our Lord says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Here is our Jacob, and he is wrestling with God. And before him is a cup. Now, there's no physical cup there. The cup and the plate from the supper are back in the upper room. So what is it that our Lord sees in his mind's eye? What is it that he uh, contemplates as he pleads with God concerning this cup? And I think the best way to understand this is that it refers to the holy wrath of God against sin. Let me explain from the scriptures why I think that is so. Here are some references that will help us to understand why our Lord speaks of the cup in this way. First of all, Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8. God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 17. Awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. And then in verse 22 of the same chapter, Thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people, See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. Well, you can turn over again to Jeremiah and chapter 25 and verses 15 to 17. I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. And then Ezekiel chapter 23 Verses 31 to 33. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will put her cup in your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much you will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breasts. For I have spoken, says the Lord. If it's possible, if it's your will, take this cup from me the cup of undiluted divine judgment against sin a cup that must be drained to its very dregs though it is full to overflowing with God's righteous anger against wickedness the father is holding out to his beloved son his own wrath and curse and the incarnate son the second person of the godhead who has taken to himself our humanity is contemplating the cup which the father holds out to him 
And he is beginning now in a very distinct way to feel what Isaiah was talking about when he said that the servant of God would take upon himself the griefs and the transgressions of his people. See, it's one thing to know that you're going to suffer. It's another thing for the suffering to begin. Imagine that someone were to say to you, I'm afraid that I need to cut off your hand because of the rot that's in it and I've only got this one blunt knife. This is going to hurt. You'd know that it would hurt, wouldn't you? You'd be stealing yourself. But there's something very different from knowing that it's going to hurt to the first moment when that blade begins to cut into you. Now our Lord has had this moment in contemplation. This night and all that it contains from his, his earliest days. He's emphasised to his disciples again and again that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. He must suffer at the hands of the Romans. He must come under the wrath of God. He's going to have to come even to the point of death. And now that reality, which has always been before our Lord, is entering into his very experience. Now the cup is before him and he needs to take it and he needs to drink it. And you and I don't really understand what is taking place here. Because for me and for you, sin is normal. It's never right, but it's normal. You know what sin is. Because it's woven into your humanity. You know what sin is. Because you carry it with you wherever you go. You know what sin is because you commit it daily in thought and word and deed. And there's some sense then in which you don't know yet what it is to enjoy pure and spotless and glorious communion with God in heaven. If you're a Christian you've at least begun to know that. But still tainted by your remaining sin. Jesus of Nazareth had no notion of what it is to be under his father's displeasure. He has always done his will. He's never known anything but the smile and the favour of his father. All he's ever heard is, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now his father is giving him a cup which as he begins to drink it is going to bring upon him sin and all its awful and horrible consequences. He who loves God and is beloved by God is going to come under the wrath of God, is going to feel the curse of God, is going to be forsaken by his Father in heaven. And he is beginning in his own experience, in his immediate moment, to feel the weight and the woe of these things. My friends, this ought to show me and you what sin is and what sin does. You think sin's a light thing, perhaps. You think sin's a negligible thing. Perhaps you don't even think that there is such a thing as sin. You don't need to worry about God and your relationship to him. You're like the man in Psalm 53, the man in Psalm 14. 
You may say there's maybe a God out there, but as a fool, you're saying there is really no God in any meaningful sense. I'm not answerable to him. I'm not accountable to him. I can live as I please. I can go where I please. I can think what I like. I can do what I like. My friend, this is what sin does. Sin brings with it the wrath and curse of the all-holy and almighty God. And when the incarnate Son contemplated the judgments that your sins deserve this day, there was a holy recoil within his spotless soul. Why? Because he is truly man. He is really human. And every sense and every affection revolts at even the first motions of the forsakenness and the curse which he is about to undergo. In his humanity, the sense and the expectation that now he will feel sin and all its awful effects in his own body... Remember, that's the language that Peter uses. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. His humanity is about to be afflicted as yours will be in hell if you live and die under the weight of your own sins. And here he is in a garden. There was a man in the garden at the beginning of God's history. Adam took the fruit of the tree in rebellion against God. And now we've got another garden. And it's at the climax of God's history. And here is another Adam. A second Adam. A last Adam. And the cup with all the wrath all the damnation, all the condemnation that was merited by Adam the first in his rebellion is held out to Adam the last and he submits. Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And notice how our Lord uses this phrase, because he doesn't use it the way perhaps that we might sometimes use it. I've heard people use this kind of language in prayer as a, as a get-out clause, as a, as a way of perhaps uh, getting an escape route. Well, I don't know this, and I don't know that, and I'm not sure about this, but Lord, your will be done. Christ isn't using this in this way. It's a statement of active submission. It's not confusion. It's true submission. Lord, your will be done. If this is possible, your will be done. But if not, your will be done. And you need to understand also that what is taking place in our Lord now is a, is a battle, a conflict between two righteous and holy desires. He's not saying... I don't really want to obey at this point. He's not saying, I'm not not interested in doing your will. What he's saying is, if it is possible, I want to avoid what lies before me. And that's exactly what you would expect a holy man to say when the weight of sin begins to wash over him. Christ would not be a perfect 
sinless human being, if he could contemplate the weight of God's wrath upon him without speaking in this way. If possible, that's a righteous desire. Let this cup pass from me. But if not, your will and not mine be done. Hebrews chapter 5 gives us just a tiny glimpse into this. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Can you imagine hearing Jesus weep? Can you imagine hearing the Son of Man groaning from the depths of his soul, crying out to his God, asking, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Again, there are other portions of scripture that help us because the only way really to get a glimpse into this is to turn to other portions of the word of God. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. What's happening in Gethsemane? The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took the form of a bond slave and came in the likeness of men, is humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Or Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, as you work your way through that chapter, verse 17, if by the one man's offence death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offence Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. When Christ dies for us, when he contemplates that death in the garden, here is that condemnation that comes. Or in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17. The world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Who is the man who does the will of God? It is the man who cries in the garden. My father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If you want to understand what it is 
for the Son of God to have taken flesh and blood. If you want the clearest and the deepest glimpse into the true humanity of your Lord, then listen to him as he weeps and groans in Gethsemane and pleads that God his Father would take this cup away from him and submits that if that cannot be the case, that God's will would be done. Now, did you notice that in Hebrews chapter 5 he was answered? Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. What an answer. There have been many great thinkers, great theologians down through the ages who've, who've said that if there's one angel that they want to speak to, it's the one who strengthened our Lord in Gethsemane. Just the one. Not a legion to rescue him. Not an army from heaven to fight on his behalf. He would be able to say to the mob who came out against him, if I wanted the armies of the Most High to come at the command of their commander, they would be ready. Here it is one angel to strengthen him. And we're not even told what he did. Did he speak to him? Did he rehearse some of the promises of God? Did he, in essence, read portions of the scripture to him? Did he bring some particular message from heaven? Did he remind the Lord Jesus of things that he knew and needed to hear over again? Did he give him something? Did he provide him with perhaps physical strength? Did he put a hand on his shoulders? I don't know. But I can tell you what happened because the angel came and strengthened him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. The angel doesn't come and say, it's going to be all right, up you get and off we toddle. The angel didn't say, don't worry, we can spare you this. The angel came and enabled Jesus of Nazareth to pray yet more earnestly. And the language of re-engagement here. If you thought you'd heard Christ weeping and groaning before, now there is an escalation. Now there is an intensification. This is the only time this particular word that is translated agony is used in the whole New Testament. Sometimes it refers to a death struggle. And that's the kind of intensity and urgency that we're now speaking about. This is a moment of crisis. I, I don't think that many of us have ever felt like we're fighting for our lives. Even if we've been involved in some kind of sporting endeavour. Maybe, maybe you thought you were about to fall off something. Maybe you thought you were about to fall into something. Maybe you've been trapped with water over your head. And maybe there's been that moment 
when it feels as if all the energies of your humanity are concentrated in a few seconds of the most intense activity, maybe then you've begun to begin to understand something of what it is for the God-man strengthened by an angel from heaven to be in agony and to pray the more earnestly. It defeats our imagination. We've got glimpses from time to time of our Lord Jesus praying. We've even got John 17 where we have that more developed high priestly prayer. But Luke draws a veil over this. All you've got, we don't even know if there were words that were discernible at this time. We just see the physical consequences. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Have you ever had that? And there's an argument. Is it bloody sweat? Is it possible that the the capillaries in the, the surface of his skin are now popping under the intensity of his wrestling with God? And as he sweats in the Jerusalem night, blood and his own perspiration are pooling and it's dripping in great globs down his body. Or is it that the intensity is such and the sustained nature of this is such that the sweat is thickening up upon him and it's like blood dripping down? Some of you have worked to the point where you're soaked to the skin. You've labored to the point where your your saliva becomes thick and the sweat begins to dry on your face. The Lord Jesus is going beyond this. His body is under the most intense strain. He is drenched in sweat. He is at the point of physical exhaustion. Without the angel's aid, he might have physically collapsed even at this point. This is what it means for his father's will to be done. This is what it costs him to hold the course. God's glory is before his eyes. The salvation of his people is on his heart. We sang about the garden wherewith his people's names upon his breast like the high priest of old with the the names of the tribes marked on the breastplate Jesus Christ groaning drooping to the ground with horrors pressed holy angels stood confounded to behold their maker thus and my friends can we remain unwounded can we watch this happening as if it's some fiction on a screen and not feel the weight of love to God and men that carries our Saviour into the winepress alone. He wrestles like Jacob. He resolves all the tensions, all the holy tensions of this moment in heartfelt submission to his Father's will. And while I want to be careful in saying it this way, I still want to remind you that for all that you see taking place in Calvary's Hill, Christ wins a great battle here. You do not want to arrive at a moment of crisis 
without prayer. Spiritual combats, the hardest battles you will ever fight, are won not when the battle starts, but on your knees beforehand. And when Christ is mocked and scorned and taunted and beaten and bruised and pierced on the tree, what holds him there is the fact that he has submitted to his Father's will. The battle is won in Gethsemane that is fought on Calvary. My friends, what a lesson for us. When did you last pray that you might not enter into temptation? When did you last pray concerning some of the challenges that you see coming? Why is it that we so often fall? It could very well be that we didn't even start praying until we got into trouble. Rather than pleading day by day, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. And then he rose up from prayer. Luke has a habit of doing this sometimes. You sort of think, is that it? Just those few words? Christ got up. He's been kneeling on the ground. He's been sobbing and groaning. At times, he's been pressed into the dust of the world that he made by the weight of the woe of sin that is beginning to press into his perfect humanity. He's been locked in what is like a death struggle, seeking that he might be entirely submitted to the will of his Father with regard to the drinking of this cup. And now silence falls again in Gethsemane. Now it's quiet. Now it's clear. And now Christ's road is plain before him and set out for him. We often say that God has not given us any painted or carved or visual representations and images of Jesus Christ. And perhaps in addition to the holiness of that, because he is the image of the invisible God, there is also a mercy for us in that. What do you think the Lord Jesus looks like when he rises up from his knees? Perhaps that one garment that he wears is now pink, with the blood that's burst from his pores as he's been agonizing in prayer. It's drenched with sweat. His face is pale and haggard. Tears and sweat blend upon his face. His beard is dripping, his hair full of moisture. He comes back to his disciples like a warrior from the fight. My friends, he's already winning. Because it's not his human desire to avoid the horrors of sin's consequences. But it's the will of his Father in heaven that is now dominating. He is ready to go for us. And he makes his way back to his disciples. And now you can begin to hear something. 
That's Peter. It's James. It's John. And they're lying there. And the other disciples a little bit further back. And they're snoring. The heavy breathing of exhausted men. Luke tells us something that no one else does. Sleeping from sorrow. Now my friends, we often and rightly say they should not have been sleeping. But Luke, who is typically marked by compassion, tells us that they're sleeping because of their sorrow. Distress is exhausting, isn't it? Sometimes agitation keeps us awake. But I know, my wife would tell you, that when there are battles in the church, when there are tensions in Christian living, when there are people in the congregation who are going through strifes and distresses, when the heart is engaged in some of these challenges and difficulties, you're permanently exhausted. You go out like a light. You wake from sleeping like a man half dead. And as soon as your head hits the pillow, you're gone. Do you know what that's like? Do you have that experience? Spiritual strifes and burdens that bring you to the point where you just shut your eyes and you're out. Why do you sleep? Says the Lord Jesus. And before you hear, well, that's not very fair. They're upset. Remember what he's just been through. They might have said, I couldn't pray because I was asleep. Christ would have said, how could I sleep when I had to pray? And he tells them again, rise and pray. And maybe it's very practical. If you weren't sitting down or lying down, you'd be better off. Get up and pray. Engage and pray lest you enter into temptation. Our Lord underscores the lesson. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he goes away and he himself pleads with God. And when he comes back, he finds the men that he said, pray for yourselves and pray with me and pray for me. And he finds them sleeping. And he says, you've lost this round and you need to go again. Not stop praying, not give up, not just rest, but rise and pray so that you do not enter into temptation. My friends, what are the excuses that you make for not praying? Why aren't we here when the church gathers for prayer? Why do I snatch those few extra minutes why do I relax at the end of a long and wearying day rather than praying with, with God's people and, and alone and pleading with the Lord that I might not enter into temptation? Perhaps it is that we're full of sorrow. That's possible. Perhaps it is that we really don't understand what is at stake. That the battle against sin is so real and so vital. Don't forget that Jesus has already been praying for them. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. They've failed to pray, but Christ has not failed to pray for them. And still he teaches them, still he instructs them, still patiently and tenderly he asks them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. My friends, as we see the man who treads the winepress alone, as you set your eyes this morning on Jesus of Nazareth, on a man who goes into battle like this for you, who sees the cup of God's wrath against sin, the sin that belongs to us, the punishment that ought to fall upon us. And as he in his holy humanity draws back from the prospect of feeling the weight of this sin and all its consequences, its penalty and its punishment falling upon him, body and soul. He's praying, praying, pleading, weeping, wrestling, Father, if this is the way that I love my people, help me. Father, if this is the way that your saints are delivered, then let your will be done. And give me, O oh God, the strength, and the courage, and the decision, and the determination, having loved my own, to love them to the end. My friends, I'm not asking you to trust an idea. I'm not asking you to put your confidence in a notion. I'm not asking you to rest the weight of your soul upon a fiction. I'm asking you to trust the man who prayed in the garden. I'm asking you to put your faith in the one who is ready to drink the cup of God's wrath for sinners like me and you. I'm asking you to rely upon him, to see him, and to hear him, as it were a stone's throw away, and to look at what he's saying and what he's doing in order that you may escape the hell that you deserve and you may be delivered from the guilt and the shame and the punishment of your transgressions. Isolated among men, obedient to his Father, the incarnate Son of God is entering step by step into the depths of darkness for his people. The Saviour is going alone into battle to suffer and to die for sinful men to save his people from their sins. And now there's another noise in Gethsemane. Now there are a few lights in the distance. Now there's the clank of mailed, men's, mailed men and the, the rasp of weapons being drawn from their sheaths. Now there's a rustling through the leaves and the bushes of the olive grove. As a mob approaches, armed and with torches. And one man out in front, who comes towards this bruised and bloodied but unbowed saviour with a smile on his face and his arms outstretched.
Rabbi, Rabbi, I found you. And the Lord Jesus turns to meet his betrayer. And having fought and won in prayer, he sets out to lay down his life for his people.